Hey, uh, my friend Pat Hecker is preaching today, and I'm here to introduce him. So Pat and I are lunch buddies. We get together, and uh, he always asks me if we can split it or if he can buy lunch. And I always say, hey, you're in law school. You're going to have, like, a really cool law job one day, and you're going to buy me lunch all the time. And then I find out he's going to work in a court. as <laughs> He's going to work in the federal system. So, <laughs> so I, I, think, I think we'll maybe... Uh, I lower my expectations. <laughs> no, just a little silly introduction there to, to say that Pat's my friend, and I'm grateful to be able to introduce him. He's also a friend of Grace Chicago, also a, uh, an attender here sometimes, and because he lives his life according to certain uh, missional principles of uh, seeking justice for those uh, on the margins, he also attends at other churches. Pat went to Duke Divinity School. I'm a little envious of that because uh, he has some really cool professors who I wish I'd have had when I was in Divinity School. Uh, the one thing I want to leave you with as Pat comes to preach this morning is um, there is a, a line that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he writes that line from prison. And so he's wishing that he could be there with them but he's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's under Roman um, persecution at that point. And uh, he gets this letter off and gets it delivered to the church in Philippi. And uh, he says in the letter, you know, I'm paraphrasing in so many words, he says, you know, I'm going to send you Timothy because um, there's no one quite like him who will uh, care for your welfare. Uh, so he says to, you know, but Timothy, he says, you know, there's nobody smarter than Timothy. I'm sending him. He's really smart. He didn't say that. There's no one like Timothy because he's uh, just amazing uh, in his, uh, you know, his skills and abilities, his, you know, that sort of thing. And he says, no, I'm sending him because he'll care for your well-being. And when I think about Pat and uh, the vocational calling that he thought he was pursuing uh, to be a pastor, and then he ended up pursuing a different vocational calling in law. Regardless, um, the one thing about Pat, the through line, is he's going to organize his life in a way that cares well for other people, especially those at the margins. So come on up and bring us the gospel today, Pat. Some of you met him, some of you haven't. Glad you're here. Is this on? Yeah? Great. Thank you. It's really kind. Um, okay. So our second lesson comes from Luke chapter 24. This is on the day of Easter. Um, so on the same day, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other, about all these things that had happened recently. And while they were talking, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood, st they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? who does not know these things that have taken place in the last few days? And Jesus asked them, what things? And they replied, 
the things about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some of the women in our group have astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and they told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. As they came near to the village where they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in, and he stayed with them. And when he was at the table, he took bread. He blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray real quick. Um, God, thank you for um, appearing on the road to Cleopas. Thank you for um, hiding yourself from him at first. Thank you for giving us this story today. Um, Help us to listen to it deeply and to hear from you fully. Um, It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I want to start a little bit by providing some context. Um, Right before this, as the passage describes, the women in their group had already shown up and they said that they saw a vision. Now, um, just backing up a little bit, this isn't actually so far all that out of the ordinary. Um, In addition to getting a degree in divinity, I actually was in social work for a while. I have had a lot of quarter-life crises and have never really figured out what to do with my life. So one of the things I did was social work. And when I was in social work school, I remember getting training on grief counseling. And the grief counseling session, at one point they said, listen, if you're, if you're with someone, especially if they're not from a Western culture, and they start saying they hear voices of their lost loved ones, or they see an image of their lost loved ones sometimes, don't go rushing to the psychiatrist saying, oh my gosh, this person's hearing voices that aren't real. This is normal, actually. This happens in a lot of cultures. Um, and it actually happens in our culture as well. I actually know a couple people who have lost their children, and they've told me stories of how they continue to hear from their kids uh, in dreams and in visions and things like that, uh, even years later. Um, But the interesting thing about the women's claim here is not that they saw Jesus, but that they claim his body is gone, 
and he's alive. He might be walking around at the market. He might need food. He might be eating. This is an altogether new claim in the, the metaphysical world of the first century. It's different. Jesus is alive. And what's more, Peter, Jesus' best friend, had just rushed to the temple and saw it exactly as they had described, which kind of takes this story from being this weird thing that women were talking about, and Luke is clearly here, by the way, trying to kind of poke at the patriarchy of his day, that the first people who got to understand that Jesus was risen were women, and obviously then the disciples, always foolish, always slow of heart, were like, well, that's crazy. And so he's trying to pull out of us all of our, our, our little um, biases and things like that. But Peter goes and he says, there's no body. I didn't see a body. And so suddenly this weird story that they kind of dismiss um, as being a story from women ends up being at least worth talking about. And that's where we meet Cleopas. He's talking about it with his friend on their road to Emmaus. And it's easy because a lot of us in the room are Christians, and if you're not, we, we've heard so many stories about Christianity and about Jesus that we kind of skip past all the irony and all the plot twists that are happening in the story, right? Like, um, we think, oh, you disciples, didn't you, don't you know you're in the Bible? The Bible has weird things happening all the time. Like, Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Three days later, we have a whole holiday for it. It involves bunnies and chocolates. It's great. And the disciples, you know, they have no idea. And when you read through the text, Luke kind of has all these little breadcrumbs he's dropping, you know, that Jesus says beforehand, oh, I'm going to rise. I'll be gone from you for a few days. It's all kind of weirdly cryptic. I, I, I wouldn't blame the disciples for not seeing this coming. I mean, Jesus had all kinds of strange powers. He was... Um, you know, rising, he rose people from the dead, he was providing food, sick were being healed. Every once in a while, he said some weird cryptic things that no one understood, and then he was crucified, and then suddenly he was raised from the dead. Like, no one would have seen this coming. Like, if I were a disciple, I would have been like, okay, Jesus is saying more weird things, can we get back to the miracles? That part was great, I understood that part. Um, but if we can actually take a moment and try to sit in what had actually happened we might be able to kind of dig more deeply into the mindset of the disciples because they've, they've just witnessed something horribly traumatizing. Um, Jesus' case, it's not an open and shut case. Um, they saw Pilate. Um, he has this weird interaction with Herod Antipas where he says, oh, I don't really have jurisdiction. Send it to Herod. He's a Galilean. Herod's in charge of Galilee. Herod you know, he, he takes a look at Jesus. They've never met before. He, he sends it back to, to uh, Pilate. Pilate has to deal with the Sanhedrin. There's all these kinds of weird ways where it looked like maybe Jesus was going to get out of this. And these characters are, are terrifying in a way that's really hard for us to, to imagine in the 21st century. Um, Pilate, uh, in, in chapter 13 of Luke, Luke described that Pilate was engaged in some kind of odd Soviet-era infrastructure forced labor project um, where he had to kind of build the, the, what they describe as the Tower of Siloam, which, which might have had to do with bringing in water. Romans were very good at, at bringing in water into cities. And um, we don't know if what happened was that the, the people that they enslaved to build the tower uh, died of exhaustion or if they rebelled and were killed. 
Um, but Luke describes that um, Pilate was a very practical politician. He wanted to send a message. And so he, um, this is just from the text, he took their blood and he mixed their blood with the sacrifices to his gods. Sends a message. He's, he's a law and order politician. Um, Herod Antipas was not one to be outdone. Um, he's famous at this point in the passage because he cut off uh, John the Baptist's head earlier in the book of Luke. John the Baptist was guilty of telling him that he should not uh, sleep with his brother's wife, who was also his niece. He had a big rivalry with his brother. Um, history tells us, actually, that um, Herod Antipas was not going to be the Tetrarch. He was not meant to be uh, this kind of lower king beneath the Roman Empire. His two older brothers were. But what ended up happening is the two older brothers, either they plotted against their father, Herod the Great, or um, their father, who was extremely paranoid, thought that they were plotting against him, and he sentenced them to death for attempted fratricide, or patricide, excuse me. Um, and so the youngest brother gets to grow up in that kind of a family environment. And this weird thing happens where uh, Jesus goes to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't think he's that guilty. We'll send him to Herod. Herod deals with him and goes, this guy is, is, is a kook. He's not answering any of my questions. They send him back to Pilate. And the text says that uh, they became friends when before this they were political enemies. So, underneath, this, what I think is going on here is that underneath, there's this political dynamic that both of them want to make fun of the Jews. The, the kind of the Sanhedrin, the people who were really after Jesus, was this group of 71 or so uh, religious leaders at the time. And these three groups had this kind of inter, kind of this federalist power dynamic that they were competing for each other. And Herod and Pontius Pilate gets come together and say, we can't agree on much, but we do want to make the religious people look stupid. And they're the ones who really hate Jesus. And so then Jesus goes to Pilate, and eventually Pilate's like, well, I can't placate these people. Let's just crucify this guy. Now, I think it's funny that in a lot of times with, well, not funny is not the word, but um, a lot of the words in the Bible we translate and give them modern meanings. But we didn't do that with the word Sanhedrin. You know, I've never gone to a church where they called their elder board the Sanhedrin. You know, we kept that word the way it is. And actually, it's because um, Christianity has a long history of anti-Semitism. And we wanted to separate their actions from us. We think of ourselves as religious people. And so when we see religious authorities doing bad things in the Bible, we don't translate those words. They're not the elder board that's doing that. They're the Sanhedrin. They're different from us good Christians. The Sanhedrin had um, laws around, uh, around allegations in criminal trials. They had protections, kind of these proto-constitutional protections, similar to how our Constitution um, provides certain protections for people who are alleged of crimes. Um, one is that you can't beat someone who was accused. They beat Jesus. Um, one, the other is that you can't use, similar to our Fifth Amendment, they can't use Jesus' testimony against him, but that is actually their, uh, their, their case in chief here. Jesus claims to be the Messiah, which actually wasn't a crime, and then they, they go against him on that. 
They also are not allowed to be um, the jury as well as the witness, but they often come up. They had seen Jesus preach so much that they described their own testimony again and again. So all of these protections they're going against, the things the people had studied again and again and again, were ended up being thrown away and, and pushed aside and completely ignored because this Jesus guy was really dangerous and they had to get after him. So the disciples who had been raised on the law, on believing in the law, on, on trusting in your leaders, watched all of this. And then they saw their friend. And he was crucified. I, I don't blame them for not seeing the resurrection coming. I can't imagine if I had seen any of these things, that I would have seen any of it coming myself. But we read the passage in such a way where we remove all of the irony that's happening here. You know, they, they don't know what happened to Jesus, but Jesus is there talking with them. All the plot twists that happen where the women were the ones who saw it first. You know, and if we do notice it, we often kind of project our own political desires onto the text. We have a problem with patriarchy in our society. Uh, oh, look, they had a problem with patriarchy in their society. Now here we are again. Look at us. Our enlightened selves are again the leaders of the story. Look at how enlightened we are. And this passage that is full of drama ends up becoming just another boring church story that we hear again and again and again, the road to Emmaus and Jesus and the breaking of the bread and the disciples and they couldn't even recognize him. And oh my gosh. And I recognize this because, uh, you know, there was a time early in my faith when, when I read this passage and the verse that says they were kept from seeing him. They were kept from seeing him. It wasn't their fault. It never entered my head. I, I just, I, the idea that the disciples wouldn't know what God was up to was something I couldn't understand. So rather than resonating with the disciples, I decided to see myself in the passage as Jesus, right? That's more interesting. That's easier for me to, to swallow. So I, I want to kind of back up and think through well, what is it about us that has actually made this passage so, so hard for us to see and to understand its, its inherent drama. And, and because I've gone to way too many Baptist sermons in my life, I have three points. Right? Uh, the first is patience. I, I don't think we, we really like sermons about walking. Um, last summer, I went to... Uh, to the Manitou Islands in, in northern Michigan. Um, and it, it's, it's an island chain in the middle of, the, of Lake Michigan. A ferry drops you off and then picks you up 24 hours later. And I walked around the island a little bit less than 30 miles, and I carried about a 30-pound pack. I didn't, I didn't train at all. And I learned something about myself, and that's uh, that I'm, I'm really much more of a driver and less of a walker. <laughs> um, I really hate walking, turns out. Um, it was exhausting, and God, I mean, this island, there's nobody there, um, and so every once in a while, you run into somebody, and it was like, cool, <laughs> like, 
you're this weird kind of funky person who went on this island with me, and, and I'm kind of this weird person. Let's talk, how often have you been to the island? What have you seen? Did you make it to the cemetery? Uh, and like, we just chatted it up, and it was so much fun. And then we went back to walking, and it was like, oh, this is awful. And I went back to walking. Um, a friend of mine who hiked the, the whole Pacific Coast Trail, uh, she spent six months walking. I called her and asked her about it. And I said, what did you learn from walking for six months? She said, first of all, you can't focus on the destination. Second of all, um, you notice things along the way. They, um, they said they got so in the moment, they started to recognize the tread patterns of the people ahead of them, and they would get all excited, like, oh, the people in our group of these weird people who hike the Pacific Coast Trail, they're a little bit ahead of us, and we're going to catch up to them, and we're going to be able to meet up at the campsite, and we're all going to be able to talk. And so they would get excited because they were like, oh, yeah, this is the guy with, like, the Dionite soul with the three holes, and, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know him. And then second of all, you get so excited to see a person because your mind can, is so powerful. It can stop focusing on all the pain because for a moment you can have some connection. So it makes so much sense that, that you know, this fellow Jew shows up, maybe with a Galilean accent, just outside Jerusalem right after the Passover. He's probably in town for the Passover. Of course, join us on this journey. Join us on this walk. But uh, so much of my own faith has so little to do with walking. To be honest, I'm, I'm much more of a destination guy. You know, if, if you look back on my, on my or if, as I look back on my faith walk, I think about the way I used to pray. My prayers, um, I, I spent a lot of time telling God what to do. You know, he was going to take away my problems. He was going to fix this person in my life. He was going to bless this person, and that their blessing would probably help me in some kind of tangential way, but like definitely bless this person. And like it was just kind of this list of like very fast orders and things I wanted done. And that's the way I related to God. I didn't understand anything about suffering. I didn't understand anything about patience. I, I'm a I'm a part of this like a group therapy um, group, and I, and I remember I asked a friend of mine who, who who's a bit older than me, and he understands these things more than me. I asked him, so how do you develop patience? And he he gave me such a wise answer. He said, I've stopped praying for uh, for any of the things I want because I'm and I, he wasn't giving a, a commentary on the whole nature of suffering. He's just talking about himself. He just said, I've learned that God has given to me the exact problems I need to help me rely on him. And it's the best thing in the world that he doesn't take them away. I have a friend who, he said his kid is like the most perfectly designed child in the world to bring up all of his insecurities and make him face them. And some chuckles from parents, it sounds like. Jesus is showing up, and he asks, oh yeah, sorry, backing up real quickly. What's interesting, too, about my, my own inability to understand this passage is it turns out walking is all over the Bible. You know, at the very beginning, the very first metaphor God gives for the life of faith is walking with God in a garden. 
You know, Jesus, when he meets the disciples, he calls them and he says, come walk with me. And here we have a passage where, where God is walking with us. All right, the second point. We misunderstand, and I, I don't really know how else to say this, but I, I don't think I'm exaggerating, actually. I think we misunderstand most of the point of what it means to be a Christian. Most people, when we come to church, we are looking for certainty. We think that we can come here and we can say the right prayers, believe the right things, and that will give us a ticket into heaven and probably at least a moderately decent life. We will understand those things. We will have some kind of impressive vantage point by which to understand God and how God relates to us in the world and relates to everyone else. You know, when I first became a Christian, I, could, I had very impressive sounding formulas. They existed between my ears. I could tell you exactly who was going to heaven. I knew exactly how to get there. I knew so much more about God probably than God did. And like, the whole of my Christian walk, the, the purpose, I came to church, I volunteered, I went to Bible study, I prayed all the time, and as a result, I was a Christian. And it sounded so religious and so spiritual and like, oh yeah, like it just, you know, I, I, I know what God is up to in the world. I see it better than other people because I'm a Christian. And so when we come to a passage like this, where the whole point of following Jesus is admitting we don't know what God is up to in the world, that God can be right next to us, and we have no idea that all of our church attendance and Bible study and prayer and tithing and volunteering and sounding Christian doesn't give us any vantage point over anybody else to understand what God is up to in the world but that what it really means to be a Christian is to be the person in the room who admits we don't know. Then most of the time, you know, we, we rush to the end of this passage. We rush to the spot where, where Jesus shows up and the breaking of the bread and it's all magical. We rush to that, but most of the passage is walking. And in the process, not in the destination, just like my life and just like most of the lives of everybody here, we have no idea what God is up to. Most of the time, we can't recognize where God is. In the passage, he shows up really fast. He kind of has all these weird magical powers. And we want to resonate with that. God, like, I used to remember telling people, like, I'm a Christian. And I would, like, smile really big. I thought I had magical powers. I thought I would, like, you know, have more joy in my life than other people. I, I, could, I could describe where God is better than other people could describe where God is. I had kind of powerful abilities. But to come into this passage and be like, actually, what it means to walk with Jesus is to be called a fool for not getting it. I, I couldn't understand the core concept of, of what it really means to be a Christian. To admit that we, we don't have any great vantage point, but that the basis by which we, we relate to God truly is it's just, it's just grace. And that's nothing else. We don't, we don't really want to trust God, do we? We want answers. 
fast answers, fast answers. We can't imagine how our suffering and our pain and our trials and the difficulties in our life could be redeemed one day outside of a vision that we can see. And there is a difference between being redeemed and kind of making it easy on us by not having the, the, the suffering actually be painful. That's not what I'm talking about. But in our impatience, we forget that it's okay to not know what we're doing. It's okay to just be on a walk. And the, fi- the final reason, I think this one actually might be harder to swallow than the fact that I think most Christians don't, we don't get what, what it means to be a Christian, is, is actually um, the final reason uh, is that we have too much money. Um, we have too much power. We don't have any idea uh, what it's like to approach a passage like this and understand what it's like uh, to have someone go through a fake trial um, or be subjected to a phony justice system. We, we see these things in the news about how many people in America are imprisoned, or how many people have been uh, wrongfully convicted, and they're the news to us. I am... Um, I want to tell you all a brief story about this. Um, uh, this year in law school, I've been working in a clinic um, where we had a client who was, who's imprisoned. And the whole basis of our case is that um, he wasn't given his constitutional protections. He wasn't given um, his rights, his Sixth Amendment right, particularly to an attorney. His attorney phoned it in at every possible stage. And as a result, he's um, been in prison, we think, at least seven times longer than he would have likely been. And we've had to uh, argue this case. We've had so many precedents on our side, so many legal precedents. We cited, what, over 90 cases or something like that in our brief, and, and we, we supplied it to the judges, and then we go up for oral argument, and uh, I had to watch as uh, these judges just tried to figure out ways to not apply the law. Um, the main strategy ended up being um, to kind of create a new fact pattern they, they ended up asking the attorney representing the other side, um, oh, the, these, these precedents that were cited don't really apply. And the attorney came up and without any citation to the record, without any citation to any evidence, um, just started uh, misconstruing the factual history. I was uh, not prepared for that. And um, I watched as religious people just ate it up. And I do call them religious people. I think it's important to call out because the whole reason judges wear robes is because they're choir robes. They go to choir stores. They go to church stores to buy them. They're, they're, they're just people, but they're trying to act like their judgments are from God. And so after oral argument, we had to call our client. We had to tell him that it didn't go as we had hoped. 
that it's more likely now that we have to going to hope for, for a lesser form of relief than the one we had hoped for. And he, he on the phone, he answered and he goes, I've given this to God. I'm praying for you all. For a minute, I, I, I could hear God talking to me and, um, and saying, you fool. He thought your, your Christianity was going to make your life easier. You thought your faith was going to make things happen for you. But isn't this what I've been talking about the whole Bible? That in this life, the poor get crucified? That people figure out ways, that religious people especially figure out ways to hurt each other, especially the poor, that they're the ones who get persecuted, that they're the ones who get phony trials, that they're the ones who get crucified, I had no idea because, you, you know, if I had a kid, if that kid were a teenager, and if that kid had a, some kind of a tiff with the law, you know he'd get a good lawyer. It's not an issue I would have had. But that's an issue that, that Jesus had. If we can uh, stop being so religious for a second and allow ourselves to look at the, the drama in the text. And I'm sure that the passage can come and speak to us a bit more clearly now. That we're the fools in the story. You know, that, that there is a God that exists in the world, and his ways are often so mysterious to us. We don't, we don't know what God is doing most of the time. Most of the story, God is seemingly absent. There is a but, though. I don't want to rush to it because that isn't most of the story. But at the end of the passage, you know, and this passage is kind of situated in the middle of a three-part series. I should back that up and talk about that. The first part is the women and Peter show up. The second part is the road to Emmaus. And then the third part, right after this passage, Jesus shows up to the disciples. He's there in person. Finally, you can touch him and he eats with them. And he, he's in person and he talks to the doubters and he says, come to me, touch me, see my hands. It's all here. I've gone through all the suffering. So all the people who have been persecuted, and all the people who have been crucified, and all the people who are poor, they have a good news now. They have good news now because God, God and God very self has come down and lived that life and gone through that very real death and risen again. And now we don't need to crucify each other anymore. Now we can live in forgiveness. Now that we can see for a moment, we, we, every once in a while this happens. I, I know it's happened to everybody in this room at least once in your life. God has shown up and utterly surprised you. And you didn't see it coming at all. 
But that's why in our communion liturgy every week we say, if anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. It's you. If we can stop being so impressed with our theology, stop thinking we know so much about God, we can just be another person who's broken and we can get help and we can have some solidarity with people who are different from us. And there, there, I promise we, we will eventually taste the resurrection of the dead. You know, the, the, the disciples had seen something so horribly traumatic and in the bottom of their despair, Jesus shows up and asks them to believe in something bigger than they had ever believed in before. And now it makes so much more sense because the God I believed in before, the God that I knew where he was, the God that I saw where he was, what he was up to, the God that I always understood and could, could figure out and gave all these orders to, that was never the real God. But the real God is here. He loves everybody he loves everybody. You know, the passage right after this where Jesus shows up, he says, I have died, I have risen again, and so there is forgiveness of sins. Everyone is going to forgive everyone for everything. There won't be any exceptions. We're invited into a different kind of faith than the one we expected but it is so much bigger and better. Because on the other side of the crucifixion, the other side of solidarity, there is a love that is bigger than death. And there is a God who loves everyone we hate. And there is a mysterious Jesus who shows up when we don't expect him. And he accepts us the way we are. He doesn't take away all your problems. He wants to gift you with patience. And he wants us to, to be okay with not getting any of it, not understanding what God is up to. And he wants to invite us to give up our wealth. And there we we can, we can, we can taste and, and we can see and we can break bread with each other and we can forgive ourselves and we can forgive one another of all of it, of all of it. And uh, then Jesus, Jesus appears to us in moments like that and, and we can eat together. And, um, and we can see uh, that there is redemption of everything.